Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, I'm Walter Lohman, director of our Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. And with all that's going on in U.S.-China relations today, especially on the econ side, all of the tension, the talk of decoupling our economies, all the geostrategic issues, the problems we have in South China Sea, Taiwan, elsewhere, uh, I'm afraid that actually the state of religious freedom in China gets overlooked in Washington. Uh, for some big thinkers, I think, some big foreign policy thinkers, actually, that's probably not an oversight. Some of our set friends, people who are concerned mostly with those big geopolitical issues, uh, the U.S. position in the Pacific, the Quad Dialogue, all these sorts of things, I think they see religious freedom issues as impediments to real clear-headed thinking on geopolitics, things that they think statesmen should be uh, most concerned about. They care about hard power. They're not focused on churches being shuttered in, in, um, in China. They're not focused on um, churches being bulldozed or the concentration camps in uh, Xinjiang uh, or the situation in, in Tibet, except to the extent that they are part of a big power game. Uh, for some other observers, I think they're just not looking closely enough if they don't see problems with religious liberty in, in China. So today, we've brought together representatives of each important community, the Christian community, Tibetan representatives of the Tibetan communities and Uyghur communities, to give us their perspective on what's going on in China with regard to religious liberty. First is Dr. Bob Fu. Bob is president and founder of China Aid, a Christian human rights organization committed to the religious freedom of all in China. I think that's important for, for all of these groups that you know, it's very true that unless religious communities stick together, even of different uh, faiths and, and denominations, that uh, that they will all be uh, uh, attacked separately. So I think it's very important to, to recognize that, that uh, China Aid cares about religious freedom of all, although they work closely with the Christian community. Uh, Bob was born and raised in China as a student leader during, during the Tiananmen Square demonstrations in 1989. He was also a house church leader in Beijing until he and his wife were in prison for illegal evangelism in 1996. A lot of things I could tell you about Bob, but it would take too long, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Uh, next, we'll turn to uh, Dr. Sten Hong Young, who's president and founder of the Taiwan Association for China Human Rights. I know a lot less about Sen Hong, but uh, he's a friend of Bob's, and any friend of Bob's is a friend of mine, so uh, <laughs> we're good to have, uh, very glad to hear, have you here and look forward to hearing your remarks. Uh, then we'll turn to Nuri Turkle. Nuri, I have actually have known for many years. Uh, among other things, he was instrumental in getting uh, Rebbe Kadir to a 
heritage stage several uh, years ago. Uh, today, Nuri is chairman of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, a research reporting and advocacy nonprofit organization founded by the Uyghur American Association with the support of the National Endowment for Democracy. And finally, Matteo Makachi. Uh, Matteo is uh, yet another very good friend of the Heritage Foundation. We find ourselves working together and consulting quite a bit. Uh, Matteo is president of the International Campaign for Tibet, and everyone knows what that is. Right? So your, your, your fame precedes you, I think, the International Campaign for Tibet. Uh, so with that, let me turn it over to Bob. He'll get us started. We'll go through maybe 10 minutes from each and hopefully then generate some conversation with the audience. Thank you very much. Bob? Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Lohman. I really uh, want to thank the Heritage Foundation for um, convening this uh, important conference in light of uh, the deteriorating situation in China. Um, Really, 2018 uh, not only marked the worst year for religious freedom uh, in China in 40 years, but also other human rights indexes, uh, I mean indexes um, such as uh, freedom of press, you know, freedom of assembly, uh, certainly the uh, freedom of association. Um, there are um, so many reports already. And today, uh, I'm so honored and, and very glad uh, also to um, be on the same platform uh, with uh, my close friends, um, you know, Dr. Yang, uh, my uh, friend, uh, uh, Nori, and uh, Montiel, uh, that um, we are uh, in uh, total solidarity. Um, so we want to tell the persecutors, uh, the Chinese uh, regime, that uh, to attack and persecute uh, one group is attack to every one of ours. No matter is uh, uh, persecution against uh, Protestant Christians, uh, uh, to Catholic Christians, to uh, our Tibetan friends, our Uyghur uh, Muslim friends, our uh, Falun Gong, and uh, whoever is persecuted uh, for their uh, faith or belief is the enemy of religious freedom. I hope we all agree on, on this, and we all um, uh, kind of united uh, in not only opposing uh, the per religious persecution by the Chinese regime, but also uh, stand united to uphold, advance religious freedom for all, including the atheists, the Communist Party members, because one of the big features in 2018 is if you go to uh, either a mosque or uh, government-sanctioned so-called patriotic movement churches around the church building, on every piece of the wall, and even toward the church building, you will see the signs said five forbidden policies. That, uh, uh, on the poster, it listed like uh, those following five groups of people are not allowed to enter into a church, a synagogue, or a temple, um, uh, these five, like uh, children under 18 years old, uh, the, uh, the, ch uh, the students, the Communist Party members, the military members, the uh, members uh, of civil, uh, working as civil servants. So these are the people are singled out, not even allowed to have a basic fundamental rights which is guaranteed 
in the Article 36 of the Communist Party's own uh, constitution, which it says the citizens of China is guaranteed for freedom of religious belief. So if, if this group of people, I mean, these five, I think, constitute at least 20% of China's population, they're not only, you know, uh, not even allowed to exercise their uh, basic, uh, you know, of freedom of religious belief. For uh, the sake of time, um, I will focus uh, primarily on the uh, persecution against uh, you know, uh, uh, Christian faith in 2018. And um, I certainly uh, am looking forward uh, to our other friends who will talk about the atrocity of internment uh, camps, the re-education camps of this one to three million uh, Uyghur friends in Xinjiang. Of course, uh, the uh, the grief um, uh, persecution continues against the uh, the Tibetan Buddhist. In 2018, uh, we have documented um, over 10,000 persecution cases against Christians, which is 36 times greater than those recorded in 2017. And uh, we, uh, by the way, if you uh, get a copy of our annual persecution report, uh, this is uh, in page 20. And in 2018, there were more than uh, 2,000 abuse cases, including physical, verbal, mental abuse, and torture. Um, it involves 50,000 Christians. We have their names that we documented uh, every case. I mean, this is, of course not representing the whole China, the persecution against all Christians, is only the tip of the iceberg. So this is, uh, I mean, the, the 50,000 uh, members uh, who were um, tortured physically and mentally um, against these Christians uh, that enclose, you know, like uh, December 20, uh, 9th, when the authorities had uh, simultaneously attacked this uh, one of the largest house churches in Chengdu, Sichuan province, the early Ren Covenant Church. I mean, children, women, including uh, pregnant women, uh, you know, were being dragged miles to the police station and lost her baby. And so I call that baby as really the first... Uh, uh, youngest martyr uh, of the year 2019, uh, 2018. So this has been uh, happening uh, not only in one location, one area, or just uh, to the so-called uh, house church or independent unregistered churches. Uh, this is happening to actually in the most massive way to the government-sanctioned, legally registered supposedly Communist Party protected the three self-patriotic movement churches. Uh, in fact, on February the 1st, the first day when the Xi Jinping's new regulation on religious affairs took effect, uh, by the way, we, we published this um, uh, 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 journal called Chinese Law and Religion Monitor and uh, documented uh, uh, scholarly analysis of uh, what's the effect uh, for that uh, new regulation on religious affairs. You're uh, welcome to grab a copy. Um, 
Uh, it shows um, that in that, that the name of that new regulation, the first day, I mean, we have received uh, credible reports in Henan province alone, over 10,000 churches, government-sanctioned churches, were forcefully shut down. 10,000. I mean, that's uh, government-sanctioned churches. You know, one county called Xiaoyi County, 200 uh, 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 government-sanctioned churches. I mean, in that one county, only three are left to be, uh, I mean, to legally allowed to continue to exist. 197 were totally shut down. That's only, you know, one county out of uh, so many hundreds of counties uh, in Henan province alone. And then to the uh, independent house churches, beginning in October, the target was uh, the largest house church in Beijing called Zion, Beijing Zion Church, led by uh, Pastor Ezra Jin, Jin uh, Mingri. And uh, the whole church, I mean, 150, I mean, 1,500 members, there's main sanctuary, and there's six branches in different districts were all attacked. I mean, of course, it, would, it was triggered when the Chinese securities demands the uh, face recognition cameras to be installed on the, you know, on the pulpit in order to monitor who are these members are attending the church, whether there are any children, any Communist Party member, any civil servants, those uh, five kind of uh, uh, types of groups. So that's one feature. So 2018 also represent uh, um, the worst uh, persecution in terms of, uh, the, for the first time in, since uh, 1967, that under the communist rule, that Bibles were being collected and uh, put on the public road, I mean square, and being burnt. Bibles and Christian books uh, were being burnt. And the last time that was that happened was uh, in Shanghai in 1967, one year after the Cultural Revolution, that uh, Chairman Mao's wife, Madam Jiang Qing, organized a big Bible burning uh, uh, um, uh, kind of a ceremony uh, with uh, hundreds of thousands of copies of Bible were being burned. And, uh, of course, uh, we have seen another uh, uh, record in 2018 uh, that um, we, we, uh, the, the central government sent religious uh, um, regulation inspection teams to go to different churches to so-called uh, inspect their compliance of this uh, new slogan called sinicization, Zhongguohua. So the sinicization is not only aiming to the Christian religion, but to the Tibetan Buddhists, to the Uyghurs, I mean, uh, I mean Muslims, I mean, uh, all faiths, basically. Sinicization. What is a sinicization? The closest term, I did a little historical research, is uh, 19... 30s, uh, when the Nazi Germany uh, put the Nazi uh, logos on the pulpit, basically called uh, Nazification. So if you want to, uh, I mean, think uh, one thing you can take away is uh, when somebody asks you, what is the sanitization, uh, you can see the closest comparison is Nazification. We were seeing 
in the government-sanctioned church, they took down the portrait of Jesus the, uh, and uh, any other uh, kind of a real religious signs, and uh, instead they installed the portrait of Chairman Mao and Chairman Xi Jinping. And with the national flag and uh, on the formal church service program, the f- item number one, instead of the you know the benediction or you know uh, uh, using I mean the prayer, number one is the, ri- the congregation is mandated to rise up and sing the national anthem and singing praises of the Communist Party. And we just uh, received one photo uh, this morning uh, that uh, the believers sent to me said they were asked to, to put the uh, the Chinese New Year, um, uh, the kind of a blessing, uh, um, uh, what, sorry for the English term, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, was, uh, you know, anyway, so tradition, you know, during the Chinese New Year, you put this uh, on, on the two sides of the, uh, your door. And instead of, uh, you know, the blessings, he said, on the one side is, uh, you know, uh, give thanks to Chairman C for uh, getting out of poverty. Uh, the other one is uh, 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 thanks to the Communist Party for being rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that was a, a Christian homes are forced to put these signs uh, there. And you have the, uh, every, the local church was asked to even have an office set up for the local Communist Party leaders, from village party chief to the county uh, party uh, official, to have an office for the local Communist Party leaders. So on Sunday, the party leader name was formally listed on the church worship uh, bulletin. Uh, so the past, the, after the pastor's sermon, the party leader would do sermon section two, uh, or part two, to purify the so-called um, the, the sermons. So these are just, uh, you know, uh, one, I mean, again, it's uh, kind of uh, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I just uh, gave these uh, examples, but shows that uh, the whole, I think, uh, the condition of uh, religious freedom and, of course, rule of law has entered into the worst time again. Um, Perhaps somebody said, okay, so, uh, since the end of cultural revolution, um, maybe it's uh, even worse in some aspects. Um, so I want to uh, stop from here and uh, have our second speaker. Okay, okay mm-hmm. terrific. I have a lot of questions for you, but I'm going to hold on to Dr. Young, please. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lohman. It's good. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I really happy to have the chance to speak here because that is a, a very important moment. Uh, Taiwan is a very unique country in the world. The life in this beautiful island is never easy. Um, the military threatening outside from China has been lasting for more than 60 years. Uh, inside, there was also a difficult history for Taiwanese people to struggle against the persecutions from the authoritarian rulers between 1945 to uh, 1987. Today, we are discussing uh, religious freedom in China. As uh, Mr. Babu has just uh, talked about, I would like to uh, extend the concern to how it affects 
the interaction in the midst of the U.S., Taiwan, and China. Therefore, my topic today uh, is from price to value, from profit to justice, how the history will see the U.S., Taiwan, and China relationship. History is something I think uh, we must keep in mind. I would like to uh, mention that the evolution of uh, Taiwan in the uh, 1980s to remind us how things were changed when the value of human rights was put on the highest place inside our hearts. Uh, China has become a strong economic entity by following the uh, footsteps of Taiwan, producing mostly that uh, what Taiwan used to produce. However, in the goal of religious freedom and human rights, it is still way behind. Many people talk about Taiwan experience as a good example for developing country to follow. This should not be limited to the growth of the economy, uh, but also the reform of political and uh, judicial system. Taiwan is a free country now, but uh, it was achieved uh, by the peoples tirelessly fighting for their freedom back in the 1980s. Uh, Taiwan used to be like China now. For about 40 years, Taiwan was ruled under martial law that was uh, eventually lifted in 1987. Um, there were uh, persecutions based on many ridiculous reasons among uh, before the Merida incident in 1979. There was the white terror suppression on the political distance. Uh, um, uh, less publicized were uh, the leveling of a certain branch of Taoism and uh, denomination of Christian uh, as cuts and uh, imprisonment of the followers. That was uh, basically not different from uh, now Christian and the Buddhist and the Muslims have been uh, treated in China these days. Uh, through the effort of many freedom fighters, the government uh, could no longer stop the tide of the democratization in Taiwan. Uh, the similar words of accusation have been used by the rulers in the past Taiwan and the now China, such as uh, inciting, sabotage, and uh, conspiring to violently overthrow the state, undermining the community's peace and stability, the dangers of uh, desiring to cause the uh, subversive. Nowadays, these descriptions have appeared in the political sentence in China frequently. The um, political sentence of uh, Liu Xiaopo was a lesson to Chinese, especially when he was uh, awarded uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. The communist China tyrannically refused the word recognition to the writer who had been in jail for 11 years sentence with the charge of uh, inciting to overthrow the state power, while the so-called evidence was just only a draft of a new constitution. And then he had been killed by so-called liver cancer. Taiwanese people felt very hard to endure the ridiculous result. Last two years, the Taiwanese human rights activist Li Mingzhe was uh, kidnapped, arrested, and had been 
tortured in China jail for five years sentence with the charge of uh, also the same name inciting to uh, overthrow the state power without any evidence. Uh, today we had uh, his wife, uh, Li Jingyu, together with us here. Can you just say hello to us? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Chinese people felt angry. Suppression has been not only against the individual of Chinese, but the whole state of Taiwan. Uh, the remarks delivered by Vice President Mike Pence on the administration's policy towards China at the Hudson Institute on October 4th, uh, 2018, he mentioned Taiwan strongly, he state, since last year, that's uh, 20, uh, 2017, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, convinced Latin uh, American nations to sever ties with Taipei and recognize Beijing. These actions threaten the stability of the Taiwan Strait, and the United States of America condemns these nations. America will always believe Taiwan embrace of a democracy shows a better path for the Chinese people. Uh, but uh, today, China has built an unparalleled surveillance state, and when it comes to religious freedom, a new wave of persecution is crashing down uh, on uh, Chinese uh, Christians, Buddhists, and Muslims. Across the country, authorities are uh, tearing down the crosses, burning Bibles, and imprisoning believers Beijing is also uh, cracking down on Buddhism. Over the past decade, more than 150 Tibetan Buddhist monks had lit themselves on fire to protest China's repression of their beliefs and culture. And uh, in Xinjiang, the uh, Communist Party has imprisoned as many as one million Muslim Uyghurs in government camps there they endure around the clock brainwashing. Uh, survivors of the uh, camps have the, described their experience as the deliberate attempt by Beijing to strangle the Uyghur culture and stamp out the Muslim faith. The speech of the Vice President Mike Pence gave us a very clear picture of the evil empire. Um, he has talked something we have experienced almost daily in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan will never accept a one country, two systems framework, said our president Tsai Ing-wen in the beginning of the 2019. Uh, the majority of uh, Taiwan public opinion resolutely opposed the one country, two systems, uh, he concluded. That is the Taiwan consensus. It was a response to the January 2nd talk. Chairman Xi Jinping said China will try to achieve peaceful reunification with one country, two system framework to Taiwan, but will not renounce the uh, use of force to resolve the cross-trade disputes. Uh, what is Taiwan consensus? Uh, it is mm, like uh, what 
Vice President Mike Pence has mentioned the United States want Beijing to pursue trade policy that are free, fair, and reciprocal. Free, fair, and reciprocal. That's very important. But sadly, uh, China's rulers have refused to take that path so far. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence said, uh, as I said before, Beijing is employing a whole of government approach to advance its influence and benefit its interest. It's uh, employing uh, this power in more proactive and uh, cautious way to interfere in the domestic policies and the politics of the United States. The Chinese uh, Communist Party is rewarding or coercing American business, movie studios, universities, think tanks, scholars, journalists, and uh, local state and uh, federal officers. Um, Worst of all, China has initiated an unprecedented effort to uh, influence American public opinion that the 2018 election and the environment leading into the 2020 presidential elections. To put it bluntly, President Trump's leadership uh, is working and uh, China wants a different American president. Taiwan felt the same threat, just like the points that have been uh, delivered by the Vice President Pence. Um, uh, Taiwan Association of China Human Rights, uh, I am the uh, president. Uh, this is a non-governmental organization in Taiwan, and our association goal is to urge the government of Taiwan to pay attention to the uh, current situation of the human rights, especially religious freedom in People's Republic of China. We believe now is the time we have to take action not just only talk all the talks. And uh, the issue of religious freedom, mostly important uh, thing is to let the people in China, especially Christian, could have chance to do worship and uh, to listen sermon through the traditional technology of the short wave and the middle web uh, broadcasting. When the evil empire disconnect the internet, the people need transistor to connect the outside world, I believe this. This is a very special occasion uh, which bring us all together to see the light uh, at the end of the tunnel. After struggling against the problem of freedom suppression in China for many years, I'd like to say not only the facts we discussed today will be part of the history, the meeting itself and the all participants here are already in the historic moment. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Young. Um, I think you raise an important question about what action we can take. Yes. We can take action. So maybe in the discussion we can get into that. Um, one thing I hope we don't get into too much is trade policy because, um, yeah, I think we should focus on the things that bring us all together here, which is concern for religious freedom. I think if you start moving into trade policy, um, you know, we're, you know, at Heritage, we're not thrilled with the tariffs on, on China and this sort of aggressive approach, uh, unilateral approach, et cetera. So then when we start talking about that, we start losing our unity here. Um, it, it also occurred to me that, um, you know, 
when we talk about um, the camps now that the, the Uyghurs are, are contained in, you know, obvious parallels immediate come to mind with Nazi Germany. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Nazi Germany is such a big image, uh, such a huge sort of uh, weight that hangs over history that's almost impossible to compare anything to it. And in fact, anytime you compare something to it, you almost lose ground because it doesn't sound uh, it doesn't sound possible but but I think I think that's partly because we think of Nazi Germany as we came to understand it fully in 1945 we don't think about what it was in 1935 and so if we can think back to 1935 and how the concentration camps in in, in Germany and how they what their purpose what their what purpose they served um, and the scale that they were at it's a little bit more digestible I think for us. So I, with that, I just wanted to, to uh, segue to uh, Nuri's remarks because he, I think, can shed some light uh, precisely on the nature of what's going on in Xinjiang. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Walter. Thank you, uh, Heritage Foundation, for allowing me to be part of this important discussion. Um, the Uyghur situation has deteriorated uh, rapidly since early 2017. That is, it has taken some time for the international community to, to begin to understand the scale and magnitude of what is happening. There has been crackdown, as we all know, uh, since Xi Jinping took office in 2013. But what is happening in East Turkestan, or Xinjiang, if you will, has invited comparison to pretty much all of the ugly chapters or regrettable chapters in the history book. Um, the Chinese state, uh, what is Chinese government's problem with Uyghur Islam? Chinese state uh, sees Uyghur identity as a threat to their control of the re uh, region, and religious belief is an important aspect of that identity. They also see Uyghur's ethno-national identity as a source of future political uh, threat. At the same time, they see Uyghur Islam as something disloyal to the Communist Party. With that mindset, the Chinese government have... Uh, Chinese leadership, especially the current leadership, have determined to stamp out the Uyghur identity entirely. This sentiment has been expressed by uh, the U.S. government uh, in various occasions, uh, namely uh, in October in uh, Vice President Mike Pence's speech at Hudson Institute. With the recent government uh, reorganization in China, the United F uh, Workfront Department observed uh, ministries uh, for religious and ethnic affairs creating more direct government control over the Im implementation of policy. At the national level, the government has instituted a signification of religion campaign targeted for the increasing government control of religion, adding a new assimilative element aimed at adding Chinese culture future to religious practices, especially a foreign religion, uh, foreign, a quote-unquote foreign religion such as Islam and Christianity. This will have a particularly negative effect on the Uyghurs because their traditional uh, religious practices historically don't have a Chinese influence. People who have been recently traveled to East Turkestan uh, report that neighborhood mosques have been uh, closed. The domes and crescent star have been removed from mosques. And chronic passages have been replaced, with, replaced by CCP or Communist Party propaganda place cards. The, the Chinese authorities are attacking Uyghur cultural practices, interfering in traditions such as wedding, funerals, banning certain Muslim names, increased, uh, increasing the confiscation of Quran, religious books and items, and trying to pressure Uyghurs 
into participating in Chinese uh, traditional holidays, such as the uh, Spring Festival or uh, New Year, which is today happened to be. The detainment of as many as 2 million Uyghurs, as noted by the, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, Scott Busby uh, in December, uh, in the internment camps, began in the spring of 2017 and is the most extreme manifestation of the security crackdown and ideological campaigns that are affecting the lives of Uyghurs both inside and outside of the camps. There has been massive buildup of high-tech security forces, turning Uyghurs' homeland into a police state, as well as assigning CCP officials to stay in homes uh, under this program called Homestay to monitor the Uyghur family members' uh, interactions and daily routine activities. Imagine that you have a group of uninvited guests wanted to sit with you on your dining table, not only that wanted to sleep in your bed, and then forcing your children to spy on your daily activities. Uh, the, the, in relation to the, this program, the Chinese government has been said publicly that they, wanted, they intended to break the roots and connections and families of the Uyghurs. This policy did not come out of nowhere after the current uh, party secretary Party Secretary uh, Chen Chuan-go took office. It emerged emerged that as a so-called de-extremification re-education work, which began in 2014, which ramped up the propaganda campaign campaigns targeting Uyghurs as suspected of religious observance. Uh, for example, wearing headscarf or growing beard were uh, perceived as a sign of extremism to the Chinese government. The regional and central government have clearly stated that religious extremist thoughts is the cause for separatism. Their solution is to wipe out that particular thought. The Chinese government recently uh, have called Uyghur Islam as a mental illness. And Uyghur's appreciation of their cultural heritage is a cancerous tumor that should be weeded out, wiped out with chemicals. The internment camp system is extrajudicial, but the closest thing to legal justification for that existed, for that to be exists in the Chinese law is what's called de-extremification measures or regulations of 2017. These regulations were the first in the nation to define extremism as, quote, being influenced by religious extremism, expressing views and engaging in behaviors under the influence of extremism, and exaggerated religious concepts which reject and interfere with normal production and life. The Chinese ambassador to the United States recently said that the Chinese government set up these camps to make the Uyghurs a normal human being. But so-called extremism is not clearly defined. The points in the law uh, include 14 manifestations of extremism, such as generalizing the concept of halal. We've been seeing disturbing pictures that the Uyghur cadres and Uyghur people forced to eat uh, pork or sell porks. Uh, pork uh, in this uh, Chinese holiday season. Uh, such, uh, you know, uh, I always say this in public, uh, probably half of the European soccer players today would be perceived as uh, the extremists in the Chinese government's mind because of the beard that they grew uh, for, stylus, uh, for style. And the Uyghur names that has the Islamic concept, Islamic uh, connotation has been banned. And names like Fatima, Mohammed, Yaqub uh, have been banned. Uh, one of the most well-known Uyghur soccer players, uh, who used to be known as Mehmet Ali, has changed his name uh, to what's called Chinese modern Uyghur name, who plays for the Chinese Super League.
And is are we going to see this uh, policy being ended or the practice being ended anytime soon? Uh, the trajectory does not look very good. Uh, and the Chinese government's behavior shows that they have no intention to uh, stop these practices. The Reuters, uh, back in last November, um, published a, a, a bone-chilling report. It, it identified solar satellite imagery, uh, over 80 uh, facilities. Of those 80 facilities, 20 of them, uh, 20, more than 20 of them were surveyed. The expansion rate is almost equivalent of 140 soccer fields. And a similar report uh, was published by Australian think tank, ASPE. Uh, it surveyed over 30, uh, 28 facilities. Uh, the expansion rate is 465% in the less than two years uh, period. And BBC also reported that uh, the Chinese government is in the process of building the largest prison camp just outside of the uh, Uyghur's uh, major city, uh, the capital city, Rimji. So it's time for action. Uh, we, we know something horrible is happening to the Uyghurs. The Uyghur uh, people's religion, uh, as I pointed out earlier, uh, is the main target for Chinese government's current policies. Oftentimes, when we look at the practices, people always focus on local government, but the problem lies in the CCP and Xi Jinping's China. Uh, finally, I'd like to uh, point out that um, the Uyghurs are in the uh, Uyghurs are canaries in a coal mine. Uh, it calls, it demands international reaction. I cannot imagine that the world stays as quiet as it is, as it has been. If someone else or some country other than China locks up more than 10% of its population in internment camps or concentration camps, we would have seen worldwide outcry, responses, and governmental uh, actions uh, that we have not seen. Uh, and also, uh, this policy... Uh, attacking Uyghur religious identity, Uyghur's uh, ethnic identity, uh, using Uyghur's life as a laboratory, Uyghur's la homeland as a laboratory, will not stay in that constrained territory. This will have international ramifications. we already seen Chinese government comfortably publi uh, publicizing uh, so-called effectiveness of this internment camp system, and the other countries must, must follow, should consider following, to address their Muslim problems. And also, they're exporting their advanced technological uh, uh, tools to oppressive regimes, the countries like Venezuela, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, uh, and Sudan, uh, Cambodia, uh, encouraging those authoritarian governments to uh, borrow uh, Chinese technology to keep track of their citizens. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Walter, and thank you, Heritage, for uh, putting this event together. Um, today is not only the Chinese New Year, it's also the Tibetan New Year, and that is why also some of my Tibetan colleagues are not here, uh, but I would like to, to, to wish everybody, um, as they say, Loser Tashidele, which is the Happy New Year in, in Tibetan language. And actually, yesterday, even the Secretary of State uh, wished the Tibetan people and the Himalayan people who have been part of the you know, Tibetan heritage, cultural heritage, uh, a happy new year, as a recognition also of the importance of uh, this culture for the United States in general. So this is a, you know, a new beginning, but what we are hearing today is not, is not really new. Um, the lack of religious freedom in China and in Tibet is at the center of what the Chinese Communist Party has been doing for the last 70 years. 
this year is the 70th anniversary of uh, you know the the communist revolution in china which coincided also with the invasion of tibet and when it comes to tibet i think there is something special in the connection between the tibetan people and religious freedom and spirituality uh, for historical reason as you know the dalai lama institution has been uh, the most important institution even joining spiritual and temporal power for, for many centuries. And so the clash between the communist ideology and you know, the Tibetan people and Tibetan Buddhism has been very, very fierce from the beginning. Uh, with the invasion of Tibet, uh, the Tibetan people saw the destruction of monasteries, the looting of monasteries. Uh, during the culture, uh, we talk about 6,000 monasteries which were destroyed at the time. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, the estimates are talking about one million people who were killed. But they, they didn't stop there. In the 90s, after the years of you know, partial liberalization, uh, the Chinese government started this process of patriotic education, which continues to this day, and we see the ramifications with, through now this sinicization of religion, which is cutting across, and it's really the new phase of religious uh, freedom of expression in China. And what we see in, in East Turkestan is really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking um, when you see that it, it's part of a systematic approach. We're not talking about some rogue elements within a government structure that are trying to do bad things. It sometimes happens, you know, when we see a human rights atrocity, sometimes it's the military structures in some countries that, you know, decide to go uh, in, in a, an extreme way. Um, the Secretary General of the Xinjiang, uh, the, the Eastern Turkestan Autonomous Region, used to be the Secretary General of the party in Tibet. And he was sent there in 2009, right after 2008, when they had in Tibet the largest demonstrations ever since the occupation. So after, at the time, 60 years of occupation, the Tibetan people rose up across the Tibetan plateau to protest China's rule. Uh, so what does, it, does this tell to the Chinese leadership? I mean, their, policy, their policies are not working. They're not winning over the people. They're not getting the Uyghurs or the Tibetans or even you know, the Chinese Christians or all those who believe in human rights and democracy to support them. But they continue to pursue that with the idea that you can break you know, people's mind and, and people's heart. And uh, Chen Guanghuao, who's now in Xinjiang, started to develop these policies on a very, you know, on a smaller scale, but the concept was uh, of total surveillance, uh, establishing a technological grid across Tibet through which basically they have created like neighborhood structures in each city with the mandate to monitor what's happening in the neighborhood and report to the authorities. Uh, they have, you know, police stations in monasteries either inside the monasteries or just outside the monasteries. That, that is common practice in, in Tibet. And now with the development of technology, naturally, they don't need to have the army in the street all the time. They just need to have some security cameras and a te te technological system to keep track of what they want to do. And when they will start in 2020 in some parts of China to em employ this social credit system, which is something that you can relate to in the United States with, uh, you know, social security number, you know, that gather some information about your financial activities. Actually, the Chinese system will include also your behavior as a citizen. 
as part of your scoring. So what happens if you go to a demonstration? What happens if you file against, file a complaint against the government? What happens if you talk to, you know, the diaspora abroad about what's going on in, in, in China? So this is really 1984 coming into reality. And uh, I think this is no longer an issue that really is important only for this community, but it's something that the international community has to look at because, I mean, we see now with what's happening with Huawei and the, the controversy about the stealing of intellectual property, but it's not only about, you know, losing value or access to, to market, but it's really empowering an authoritarian government, which is now the second biggest, biggest economy in the world, to reshape how international institutions and international values are implemented. Um, when you have a Chinese officials running the Interpol, and then he disappears in China. <laughs> and the Interpol issues a statement saying, we don't know where he is. Uh, I mean, where are we going? Uh, and so I think those are uh, you know, questions that are no longer really relevant for human rights activists or you know, minority community or democracy practitioners, but really for, for every citizen who care, who care about these uh, this issue. But let me say a few words uh, more specifically on, uh, on Tibetan Buddhism and what's happening. One issue that everybody is aware of is, is the question of you know, the reincarnation system in Tibetan Buddhism is one of the, of the tenets. And everybody is aware of what happened to the Panchen Lama, who was this uh, young boy who was identified by the Dalai Lama. The Panchen Lama is considered the second most important institution in his you know, uh, Buddhist lineage of the Galupa tradition, and when the Dalai Lama recognized this boy at six years old, the Chinese authorities decided to kidnap him and his family, and he hasn't been since, uh, since then. Um, the, officially, the Chinese government has been saying, both at the UN and in other places, that they want to respect his privacy, and so he doesn't want to be bothered, but he's fine, um, and all is good. But not only they kidnapped him and his family, but they appointed their own uh, and so what has happened is they, they groomed this uh, person who's a Tibetan, uh, you know, selected by them, and they have tried to uh, convey to the Tibetan people that these are the good lamas, these are the good teachers that you should follow. The problem is that the Tibetan people don't really respect or don't really, you know, follow someone who's imposed by the government because this, is, you know, it's just not possible. It's just a basic principle of of religious freedom. But this is part of a larger plan that they are now moving forward to implement and they have re officially written in their uh, legislation with these uh, new regulations that have been passed more recently uh, over the last few years. Their plan is even to select the next Dalai Lama. And so uh, this is a very, very dangerous road that the Chinese government is taking because uh, the Dalai Lama uh, doesn't need to be you know, introduced, but has been someone that uh, has been not only a, a leader in promoting nonviolence, uh, interreligious dialogue, and compassion all over the world, but has been a key meeting, mitigating factor in Tibet because he has been for decades advocating for negotiations with the Chinese government and for finding a solution that would uh, uh, address the concerns of the Tibetan people regarding the cultural identity, religious freedom, respect for the environment, 
while respecting the current political system in China. So a very big compromise for the Tibetan side. But if the Chinese government decides to go down that road, I mean, this will bring up you know, unresolved issues within Tibet that goes back to historical situation. And there wouldn't be anybody else who might be able to keep the situation under control. And so this is something that, you know, frankly goes beyond uh, Tibet. As you know, you know, Tibetan Buddhism has had influence, you know, for many uh, centuries in other countries, including Mongolia, Nepal. Tibetan Buddhism has been also uh, spreading overseas, even in the, in the United States. So every Tibetan Buddhist or someone who cares about religious freedom should really watch these uh, carefully, because this is what the Chinese government believes could work, that they would just select their own people and they would uh, uh, be followed and endorsed by the international community. Now, the United States government has already said, both with the Congress and the administration, both the previous administration and this one, that this would not be accepted. But as we know, the Chinese government wouldn't be deterred by just a statement. Uh, there needs to be actions. And I think one action that... Uh, um, I think is being discussed at you know, several levels of government. But when you have uh, officials like Chen Guanghuao in uh, Xinjiang or others who are overseeing religious freedom policies, I think the time has come to try to look at also at how this Magnitsky legislation has been implemented, uh, which um, is a legislation that basically authorizes government to sanction certain officials who are found responsible for grave human rights violations. Now, uh, I think that besides the specific cases of human rights violations that sometimes you know, affect one individual or a group of individuals in a, you know, with tragic consequences, whether it's torture or death, I think what is important is, lo is also to look at the architects of the policies that are being implemented on a larger scale and start to say that these policies if implemented, are going to affect the lives of people. And so these individuals should be individually also uh, targeted uh, with visa sanction, whether it is you know, um, the, the freezing of assets or other tools that can be, can be taken. Because when we, need, when we see that uh, you know, human rights is put not only on the side of bilateral relations among countries because everything is dominated by security, and economy, I think we need to develop a way to enforce, uh, you know, human rights principle that you know goes beyond the political posturing, but sets some standards that have some legal, legal background, a legal um, solid, uh, um, you know, enforcement uh, mechanism behind it. So I, I think uh, uh, every government, while running, you know, the affairs and governing. Uh, is in need to find you know, moral clarity. Um, it's not always about the economy. We know every, these, these issues are very important, you know, social security and other things. But I think moral clarity is, is very important uh, for every government. And I hope that you know, religious freedom uh, you know, is again considered to be an issue that you know, can bring moral clarity, not only to the citizens who deserve it, but also to the governments that are in charge of running our affairs. Thank you. Thank you, Matteo. Um, it always takes a couple of minutes for thoughts to gel in the audience, so uh, please give some consideration. Let me let me ask just a couple quick questions. Um, 
Um, the um, uh, first to Bob. Uh, the uh, it seems like many years ago, actually. Christian community in the United States was much more open to engagement with the Chinese because um, there was some value to it. There were there was activity, Christian activity going on churches. There was some hope for um, the growth of those communities, and 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 the Chinese even for a time, Chinese Communist Party even seemed to put some value, at least a non-religious, non-spiritual, but totally utilitarian value on. People of faith, they thought they they became good citizens that way. They they exercised the right kind of values that supported the state, etc. Um, and, and so they, Christian communities, along with the business community here, at one point seemed to be some of the most constructive or wanting to be constructive in the relationship. Uh, number one, is my memory of that correct? In your your opinion, but number two. Um, is there any hope left of engaging the Chinese, or the Chinese government in Beijing, the party? Is there any hope of engaging them on these issues constructively? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Walter, uh, you, you, uh, your memory is right about um, uh, this um, uh, sentiment uh, before Xi's uh, era. Uh, I remember during the Hu Jintao's time. I uh, remember his key word is harmony, right, uh, a harmonious society. And he even gave a very uh, big talk during, at the Politburo uh, Religious Studies, uh, t- talking about um, how to like, integrate the social values of uh, religious teachings, including uh, Christianity. And uh, even during the Sichuan, you know, Wenchuan earthquake area, actually the largest group of uh, first responders uh, went to the uh, earthquake-affected uh, areas um, or uh, acknowledged our Christian groups, uh, including, actually, the uh, unregistered churches. Um, that is uh, acknowledged by the Bu, the Ministry of Civil Affairs. So at times, there were some kind of, um, at least on the social value part, um, the... Uh, there was some some hope, at least, uh, you know, the authorities would allow to do charitable work for, like, uh, care for the needy, the poor, you know, the elderly. And, um, but it seems uh, clearly uh, there is a paradigm paradigm shift. Um, And make no mistake, the Chinese uh, Christian communities, um, in general, is a very apolitical or very political passive, uh, I would even say, because uh, number one, of the theological teaching. Um, um, number two is uh, given the Communist Party's suppressive policy, they have no room to even on the pulpit or in, in the public square to talk about any of their comment on, uh, on the Communist Party's um, policies, the human rights records. But C, um, under President C, or Emperor C, you can call him, since uh, there's no term limit for him anymore, uh, there is a major paradigm shift. I think we all uh, talk about this uh, sanitization. Of course, he's kind of manipulating this uh, um, nationalism, patriotism, uh, and uh, very extreme kind of uh, uh, Moism uh, ideology. Um, I mean, give you an example uh, for 
the last year when the one inspector uh, inspection team from the central government inspector church uh, government sanctioned church and they found uh, oh there is a 10 commandments on the wall and the inspector basically pointed to the first commandment and said no this is uh, incompatible with presidency uh, uh, the first commandment was removed so 10 commandments became <laughs> nine commandments <laughs> So that is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it's not only to one church now. It's uh, the whole kind of uh, spirit of that uh, directive is going, I mean, spread it uh, into other churches. So when the church ceases to be a true church, or when the Christian is uh, being forced to even, you know, to uh, so-called, um, in the name of a mate, a religion compatible with the socialist, the communist doctrine, that really is the, the the red line, right? I mean, no matter how beautiful you describe their social benefit contribution, when you, the communist regime, uh, try to change the core of your faith, when the uh, last year was the first year of so-called five-year plan for the synthesization of religion or Christianity, uh, the uh, uh, the <coughs> official uh, church already uh, pronounced they're going to retranslation the Bible. Mm. So uh, essentially, you expect the Chris, Chinese Christian Christians will receive a new version of the Bible uh, compatible with the socialism. So you can imagine maybe the the the, the in the book of uh, uh, the the uh, Exodus. The Ten Commandments will become nine commandments. <laughs> Maybe Moses have to change route. You know, <laughs> I have to find somewhere else <laughs> the Ten Commandments. And uh, you know, they have to do a new commentary uh, to see that. So that the the confrontation is not caused mm-hmm. by the believers. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of uh, really the Chinese believers. Um, I mean, really seek confrontation. Like our Uyghur friends. I mean, they are. You know, citizens. They're, I mean, uh, they're practicing their faith. Normal, peaceful um, citizens of that country, and um, but it was this very repressive paradigm shift and uh, treat the two authentic faith as a national security threat. Mm-hmm. I think that is uh, the, the the real cause uh, of this uh, uh, core uh, conflict uh, or problems. Yeah. So no paintings yet of Xi Jinping with long flowing hair. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> they said, uh, well, they put, uh, you know, in one church they have uh, a cross on the stage, and one side is Xi Jinping's portrait, the other one is Chairman Mao's portrait. Yeah. So yeah. the common yeah. question asked by the Chinese Christians, who is that saved thief? <laughs> the rubber. <laughs> they're, they're doing a giant tanka with Mao Zedong oh. in yeah, yeah. Tibet. Is uh, it cost uh, four million yuan, like six hundred thousand dollars. This is in Gansu. In a, in a yeah, in a I mouth. mean, yeah. even the the Shaolin in, in Tibetan you know, Buddhist, the Shaolin Buddhist monks, they are chanting said, uh, "Oh, you know, we want to be the great good monks of Chairman Xi." That's, so that that's so Xi Jinping became a, a, a kind of a, a semi reincarnation of uh, that section of the Buddhism for them to learn said to be a 
communist, uh, I mean, leader, uh, president sees good monks mm -hmm. to follow his examples. Well, uh, well, let me ask, uh, open it up to questions right here in the center. The black, we have a microphone over here. Please identify yourself. Uh, my name's. That's fine. That's oh. good. That's good. That's good. That's okay. Good. Uh, my name is Nicole Wittersheim. I'm senior human rights advisor at USAID, which is a development agency under State Department. Uh, I'm not uh, an expert by any means uh, in this part of the world and the issues you're raising specifically to China, uh, but I have seen the impact of what they do when they share with Sudan and other countries that I've worked on for the last 20 years. Um, thank you for sharing very compelling uh stories and uh, examples of what's happening. I just want to dig a little deeper on what to do about it. Um, uh, the Global Magnitsky Act is, is, a, is a, a, a very exciting tool that's being used robustly by the current administration on various human rights uh, crises around the world and individuals. We've seen whole strategies, and I know of them best in Africa, uh, where you do economic sanctions on a government, you do economic sanctions on an individual, you do travel sanctions, you have a whole communication strategy, both for regional entities, uh, and in this case, maybe ASEAN or and the UN. Um, I just need to hear, uh, and you know, we have an interest in the U.S. government, as you've noted, with uh, the vice president and uh, Scott Busby's uh, comments, but I, I want to hear specifically a little bit more about actions to take. Uh, and a strategy, because, you know, it's it's clear uh, that we need to do something, but I think you're, you're going to have to be a little bit more prescriptive for us um, and uh, inside the U.S. government. I mean, USAID, we can't even really work in China. Uh, so, yeah, that would be more helpful. Thanks. Well, let's, um, Nuri and uh, Matteo, take a shot at this. Thank you very much for that excellent question. Yes, it's time for action. Actually, it's past time for action. Um, a number of things that uh, United States and, and the U.S. traditional allies could do. Uh, as you know that the Chinese government, uh, Xi Jinping's China, still cares how they've been portrayed or presented in the international community. Uh, public naming shaming is one of the important tools. We have to call it what it is. We cannot, I think the, the business as usual method has to be, uh, has to stop and it has not been effective. One, and two, this has to be multilateral matter for U.S. and its allies to come together to work. The closed door, quiet diplomacy, uh, uh, not hurting Chinese people's feeling, uh, offending the Chinese government type of approach did not get us anything. So, uh, and also at the same time, the Chinese government uh, has shown that they will respond to international outcry. The watershed movement was the last August at the U.N., uh, the uh, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination made public that the Chinese created no rights zone. Up to a million Uyghurs have been locked up, and the Chinese government uh, apparently did not expect this kind of response and, and been trying, they've been spending. That shows that they, that they still care how they've been seen, perceived in an international community. And also, um, I think the uh, like-minded government, government approach, uh, like the one that was effective during the Cold War, bring together the democracies uh, uh, together and, and come up with a uh, tangible action is one thing. And then uh, U.S. Congress uh, it currently is considering a uh, legislation, a bill, 
uh, called Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, uh, introduced by uh, Senator Marco Rubio and Christopher Smith of New Jersey. Uh, it's been uh, it's been amazing that how much uh, support that already uh, this particular bill, which is less than a month old, already uh, received. Uh, as of yesterday, uh, my count is over 20 senators uh, already signed on board uh, to support this legislation. This specific legislation, one of the main objectives is to uh, force the Chinese government to shut down this uh, modern-day internment camps. It has a reporting requirements. It has a requirement to establish special coordinator at the State Department. And also, importantly, it requires law enforcement um, agencies in our country to defend the rights of the Uyghur Americans and the Chinese citizens who have been uh, uh, ch Chinese, uh, individuals with the Chinese origin or has a family members in China being threatened or forced to spy for the Chinese government. Our sovereignty is under threat. The Chinese activities in our country, here in the United States, has been so active, so relentless, aggressive. So this, this kind of legislative activity will ad address uh, the issue. And also, I know that Walter does not like to talk about the trade issue, but we have to find a way to speak the language that the Chinese government understands. So bringing this particular issue uh, into the, uh, the hot topic conversation that the U.S. and China is engaging with may, uh, may uh, yield some outcome. Well, I agree with the last point. I think bringing it to the table in the process of discussing all the other issues is very important. My only concern is I, I wouldn't tie it to trade status and, and tariffs and all the rest. Um, we've got a lot of things already tied up, in fact, on those on those measures, so I'm not sure how much you can dilute it uh, through that process. But, uh, Matteo, in the, in the process of answering this question, uh, because I think it lends itself to it, as Nuri uh, alluded to, what is the... Um, status of action in Europe and, and their approach to any of these these issues. You have a very unique history, having served in the Italian parliament. You have an idea how they think and how the processes work. I'd be very interested to hear that. I think in general, uh, on, on human rights issues, we have, over the, I would say, over the last 10 years, um, since you know the 2018 economic crisis that hit uh, you know, our countries, and there was a, a huge reliance on China. That had very important geopolitical implications also in the way, especially European countries have been dealing with China. And so there has been a weakening of the focus on human rights issues, which the European Union has championed for, for a long time. Um, but I must tell you, over the last year and a half, um, there has been a change, um, even in Europe. I think uh, um, that there is you know, some credit to the approach of the Trump administration to, uh, to challenge the status quo policy on China uh, and you know, with uh, you know, various degrees of you know, agreement or disagreement on the different topics. But I think uh, uh, the, the acknowledgement that the rise of China is not going to be uh, uh, peaceful and it's not going to be something that we can deal uh, uh, as we are, we are dealing with the European Union or with Canada or Mexico, I think this is, a, this is important. And I think there are opportunities uh, in Europe. In Germany, certainly, there is a lot of awareness and worry about uh, how you know, Chinese companies, for example, have been um, accessing to the European markets and uh, what are the implications. So uh, from, from our side, uh, the international campaign for Tibet, four years ago, we started uh, promoting the concept of reciprocity in relations with China, between U.S.-China relations, when it comes to access to Tibet. Um, Tell you briefly, 
in order to get to Tibet, it's not enough to have a Chinese visa. You need a special permit. And the Chinese government has used this system to block access to Tibet for, for decades. So diplomats, journalists, NGOs, even normal tourists. If you go to Tibet, you can only go through an organized tour and you go through a state you know, sanctioned travel agency. You just don't, don't get a car and go wherever you are. So for them, it's important to control information, what comes in, what comes out, to foster their propaganda. This legislation was just passed. It was approved uh, at the end of the year and signed by President Trump. And basically, uh, this will allow, and in 90 days now, they will have to present a report to Congress saying what is the level of access for American citizens to Tibet. But it will allow the State Department to block access to the United States for the Chinese officials who are responsible for implementing those policies. To me, uh, beyond Tibet, I think the question of reciprocity, which has been a lot of, you know, uh, there's been a lot of attention on trade issues, but aside from trade, trade issues, there are many other issues that on which this principle can be applied. Think about freedom of information. Why is it that Xinhua or, you know, other Chinese state uh, media are opening shops everywhere, Washington, other places, and they broadcast in English? And why is it that no American media is allowed to broadcast in Chinese, in China. I mean, this, that, it doesn't make sense. You know, China is no longer a developing country. Um, it's a huge market. I mean, there are also economic reasons. But actually, it's a question of fairness. If they, do, if, if they want to be part of the international community, you don't agree on the human rights treaties? I mean, but these are bilateral principles that need to be implemented. Think about academic freedoms. You have the Confucius Institute in all the you know, Chinese, you know, U.S. universities. What are allowed, you know, uh, American universities to teach in China? Is there academic freedom? Uh, I mean, we hear many stories of scholars who get invited to China and, you know, to speak about something, and the day before they're told, yeah, maybe you shouldn't talk about this, and, you know, uh, you should find another way. So I think the question of reciprocity, if uh, uh, looked at in a creative way, can offer opportunities also to advance uh, human rights, and it would fit also the agenda of certain, you know, administration like this one, who's not certainly, you know, in internationalist, you know, as an approach, it's very much focused on, you know, uh, American interests. Uh, but actually, it can it can provide an opportunity and, and also to to bring in other European countries who are struggling with uh, with the idea of um, finding a. a a unified position, which is the biggest problem in European politics at this moment, because with now, you know, the membership at 28, it's almost impossible. Now, my country, just yesterday, uh, for uh, reasons that I won't delve into, but they blocked a common position on Venezuela. And so the European Union now didn't have a position on, on that. So I think that comes down to China, because China has been also trying to promote an alternative model of development in Europe that they call the 16 plus 1. So they have convened meetings only with a certain part of Europe, basically Eastern Europe and some countries out of the European Union, in which they promote uh, economic support without any discussion on human rights, which is at the center of the dialogue with the European, the European Union as a whole. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a very dangerous dynamic going on there. Uh, but I, I think especially at the UN, and actually we have joined, I think, also supporting a group of NGOs asking you know, the US government and others to, 
this is the time to start to work on a, on a resolution. Yeah. Uh, the you know, Human Rights Council in Geneva, because what, with all that is going on, I mean, uh, you, you can't continue to give a pass to China, even at the place that is being institutionally established to deal with human rights. If you don't do it there, where are you going to do it? So I think that's, uh, that's very important. Yeah, the, the, the issue of access is so important. Um, I mean, we could have a scholarly debate about um, what the West knew generally, what was going on in Germany in the 1930s. We could have a debate about that, and there's a, a, a lot of conversation already. But the truth is the regime tried to keep the information secret all the way through the war. They restricted access. They restricted information, and so there was always a doubt over exactly what was happening. And especially when I think of the Uyghur issue, we need to know what is happening. We need to know it with some authority in order to act. And as long as the Chinese are able to cast some doubt on the authority that we are discussing this under, they have a little bit of an edge to to prevent effective action from being taken. See a few words on the microphone. Let me let me get one more question, and maybe you can in response. Yes, right here in the black. Christina Alney with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Thank you all for your presentations. Um, we actually were just hosting last week uh, Cardinal Joseph Zen of Hong Kong here in Washington to award him with the Foundation's uh, Truman Reagan Medal of Freedom and uh, for some meetings with administration officials. And one of the things that we discussed uh, during those conversations was the relationship uh, in the Catholic case, the case of the Catholic Church, between the unofficial church in China and the official church in China. And uh, essentially, uh, you know, the, the bottom line of what Cardinal Zen was saying is that there cannot be unity in the church in China so long as the CCP is in power. Because as we've heard from our panel this morning, the CCP has ultimate control, particularly over the official church. And so my question for you is, um, besides sanctioning officials responsible for the human rights violations in Xinjiang and in Tibet uh, at the highest levels, um, because that is an important signal that needs to be sent to the CCP, how else uh, can the U.S. And, the, and our allies change the decision-making uh, of the CCP? Because as we've heard uh, from Nuri, uh, you know, the playbook of the last 20 years, uh, particularly in our relations uh, with China, has not worked. Um, so that is my question. Thank you. Um, let, me, let me ask Jackie Young, would you like to respond to that? How can we change the decision-making uh, process and then, and then let Bob respond and he can sure. add his comments. I, I think uh, from the point of view of Taiwan, we do think something we have to do because we are so near to this uh, big country. Um, a lot of uh, Taiwanese uh, think uh, if we were a ship, we quickly we have to move out of that place. But actually, it reflects the Taiwanese. The thinking is that we have the obligation and the uh, uh, the responsibility to do something. So that's why we are going to pass the Refugee Act in Taiwan. I think that is a, a very important move of Taiwan to do. Because if we can do that, we are so near, so we can protect some people. They really want to escape from China. 
we have a lot of uh, information of this part, and um, uh, including Uyghur, including uh, Tibet, and into, including the uh, distance in China. And that is one. And the second thing is uh, I just mentioned that the shortwave broadcasting is very effective now because uh, disconnected the, the Internet by the Communist China. Is if we want to send a message in that the people in China to understand what we care, but the way now is so inefficient because it's disconnected. So we have to come back to uh, uh, the traditional short web, middle web, the broadcasting. And uh, in this, in this uh, technology, Taiwan is uh, still uh, keep the uh, very good uh, uh, broadcasting uh, tools in Taiwan. So I think that is another one. To, uh, just, uh, this morning we visited VOA. We are talking about the possibility we can cooperate with the VOA uh, with us and, uh, you know, just only a small transistor uh, of the Chinese people, even in the rural area, in Xinjiang, in Tibetan, it's easy to receive our signal because uh, the, the Taiwan, uh, the Radio Taiwan International, our coverage is the whole China. Uh, we have the 10 different uh, frequency to uh, broadcast into China. So uh, the, 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 to them, it's very difficult to interfere our signal. Mm -hmm. So clearly, because I have a program there, uh, sometimes I open uh, life to uh, accept uh, the telephone call. Immediately, just only one second, you know, people come in. And I always ask uh, what kind of a tour you listen to our programs through internet or through transistor. Ninety percent people say through transistor because uh, that is not possible for them to uh, listen to us and freely through internet. So I think that is a way we have to do, connect the people. They didn't know we care. That is the first thing we have to do. We just sit here and say lots of things we do care, but they cannot listen to us. And so that is the first thing we have to do. And second thing, if uh, I still thinking that uh, in the future, democratization will be the future of China, but uh, we still keep some good people, the really decent people. Now they are persecuted. So that is not uh, fair for them just uh, uh, the, let them fight and fight and fight over there. We suggest some some people with like Liu Xiaopo. It's a I feel so sorry because I uh, used my uh, radio program. I interviewed him before he was arrested. I interviewed him thirty five times, and Gaozhen lawyer. I interviewed him more than fifty times. Uh, but I think that is uh, even we feel so dangerous uh, of his uh, situation, but still cannot do things right. So if we can do that to uh, uh, range uh, like uh, maybe Bob can respond more uh, to rescue people from out from there uh, to Taiwan is because it's very near. That is uh, possible. I I would like to say the government of Taiwan now is uh, really 
willing to do things like that. But they, uh, the Taiwanese uh, president, Tsai uh, Ing-wen, we need to uh, encourage her. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a way to let Taiwan so uh, different. We must do something. Like uh, today, I together with uh, Li Jingyu here, we here for the help from the United States. But how come we can just only ask the United States to help Taiwanese? We have to do something, help people. Then that's fair. That's fair. So that's why, uh, yeah. And, and Bob, um, in, in your response also, your question was how we can affect the decision-making in Beijing, right? How, how do we get at that? And, and that brings back the issue of whether, again, I don't want to be... Um, Naive, okay. Is I just want to get this issue sort of covered. Is there any prospect of talking to them about it? And the, and the response to this this question about how we impact their decision making. Well, um, I certainly uh, thank you, Christina, for the questions. Um, I, I totally agree with our panelists. Uh, the description of um, you know the time for. Kind of uh, under the table uh, engagement, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, face saving diplomacy uh, has come to an end. I think uh, we in the West, at least I, in the past 20 years after I came to the US, I observed uh, we care more about the, the face, saving face of the Communist Party than the true uh, suffering people. And honestly, our core values that we cherish most in our uh, free society. And, um, you know, when the foreign ministry spokesperson every time said, oh, you, when you raise this case, you interfere the internal affairs. And uh, then um, when you uh, have a U.S. congressional resolution, then they condemned it as, like, uh, greatly hurt the feeling of the Chinese people. So the Chinese people's feelings are so easily to be hurt. And so vulnerable, uh, they hijack the Chinese people's feeling. Um, but uh, you know, I think uh, now, I mean, I agree also that from the policy level, the multilateral approach. I just you know came back from uh, Brussels uh, after testifying at uh, the European Parliament hearing, and um, that hearing is like this: it's uh, focused on religious freedom in China. It's my largest uh, turnout hearings, uh, much you know three times a bigger size. Uh, it was a, a really cross-party uh, hearing uh, with uh, multiple uh, members. Uh, this has not been seen in the past. I think there is a, a consensus already from the policymakers, and even, I hope, in the multilateral uh, kind of uh, institution like the United Nations Human Rights Council, that should be um, a time, time for actions. And I want to really address that in a more... Um, uh, kind of a grassroots level. I think uh, for, for, for one thing, uh, the Communist Party's tactic was, uh, in a sense, successful. They always called United Front, build a United Front. I think they successfully uh, uh, soar, I mean, planted divisions um, within China, even among the different uh, minorities uh, and, uh, of course, majorities, or religious, I mean, the persecuted uh, religious uh, groups. And for instance, you know, uh, whenever, I mean, I'm a Han Chinese, uh, this is my 
to kind of uh, observation when I was in China, even for quite a long time after I immigrated to the U.S. as a refugee, um, I you know got a pretty I think uh, uh, open Western education. Whenever this word Uyghur, uh, you know, uh, kind of came to my mind, it was immediately the image was like very kind of uh, aggressive, violent, threatening, <laughs> always want to kill us. Uh, I mean, we, we, when we are in the Birmingham University, did my great studies, when I saw a Uyghur or, you know, coming to ours, we have to really, <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, not only a perception, it's, it's real. So when, I mean, that's the, the common, you know, 90% of the Chinese population, the Han Chinese perception of Uyghur. Is, is he... Very threatening, you know, <laughs> kind of, a, you know, a gentleman. Uh, it's kind of a, so that's why Going we... Back that long, back to the 80s. Yeah, the 80s. very long. I mean, yeah. uh, so yeah. the, here in the U.S., I mean, we uh, started, uh, we call the Bearing the Witness campaign, basically by asking our uh, Christian churches in Virginia, I mean, other areas, to invite the Uyghur Muslims uh, persecuted or family, uh, you know, who... Uh, has family members persecuted to a church to share their stories and to pray over them. And, of course, our Uyghur friends, I mean, held the largest rally in uh, Adam Center in the in, in, in mosques last week in Seattle uh, by uh, inviting Christians, uh, I mean, Han Chinese Christians, too, to share their testimony. Uh, what, a, I mean, I think, you know, that may be, send a more powerful message uh, maybe sometimes than a few politicians talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to show to the Communist Party that uh, we, yes, I mean, we acknowledge our differences, our faith, our belief, but when it uh, comes to the human dignity, the uh, very core fundamental uh, value of religious freedom, we are united. Mm-hmm. I mean, our Chinese human rights lawyers, I'm so thankful some of the pioneers uh, who are still in prison, like uh, lawyer Zhang Tianyong. They have, I mean, uh, Gao Zhisheng, you mentioned, who already disappeared uh, another one and a half years. They are the pioneers, basically, uh, uh, when the Uyghurs and Tibetans were persecuted and they went to their uh, social media and calling the Chinese, Han Chinese, to eat at a Muslim restaurant, a Qingzhen Tsanguan. Uh, to I mean that one symbol, I mean to for Han Chinese to sit over there and purposely you know to eat a, 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 a meal uh, a, in, a, in a in a in a in a Muslim restaurant, I mean you can't underestimate the power of that uh, kind of a citizen's power uh, to send to the regime that uh, your division effort will not be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Um, I hope uh, our Chinese citizens, uh, I mean, inside China, if they, they kind of uh, hear about this, I hope they can do more and more. Just, uh, you know, Zhang uh, Tianying, I mean, Tong uh, Biao, you know, they went to Tibet and they, uh, publicly they said, you know, those who are persecuted, we are Christians, we want to be your lawyer. We want to represent you in the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that kind of citizen's power, uh, the grassroots power, uh, maybe, you know, to uh, is more kind of an um, uh, uh, engine of change uh, from inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, w- I mean, 
we are sitting on the same panel together is also a great testimony. Um, is uh, is uh, I hope inside China, uh, my you know, eighty million, hundred million, uh, depend who takes the number of uh, my fellow Christian brothers. If ten percent of them stand up, you know, out of one hundred million Christians or eighty million, you know, ten percent of them, you know, stand up said, you know, I enough is enough. I you know uh, want to stand uh, in solidarity. Uh, with those uh, who are persecuted for their faith. What a difference uh, it could make, you know, to the Chinese regime. Yeah, so that's something I want to emphasize. And seeing this lady, you know, she and her husband, uh, Taiwanese citizens, they live in a democratic free environment. Why do they have to care, you know, what's happening over there and end up five years imprisonment as a Taiwanese citizen being accused of subversion of Chinese state power and uh, coming to D.C., to Europe, I mean, to calling not only for her husband's freedom, but for the freedom and, uh, and, uh, and dignity of all Chinese citizens. I think that kind of a spirit will unite us. Um, I'm so glad that in Congress we have this uh, bipartisan bill, you know, 20 senators for this legal human rights I mean, uh, policy act, and uh, in the Senate, uh, Speaker Pelosi, and... Senate Republicans, maybe that's the only issue they can be united. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, to, to really, because, I mean, this is, is not nonpartisan issue after all. So that's my kind of appeal and a call. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Have, the, uh, just one minute. Yes, please. Um, that's a very important question. Uh, three things must happen in order to see. I'm not a political scientist. I'm a lawyer. But um, strategically thinking, I think we're seeing some change already. Uh, one, um, the public already know what kind of government, what kind of authority, what kind of uh, political party that the West as a business partner dealing with in Beijing. Uh, through the oppression uh, against the Uyghurs, set, uh, construction of internment camps, locking up more than 10% of population in 21st century, already showed what kind of government that the West is dealing with in Beijing. Number one, number two. Number two, uh, I think the, the Western capitals are starting to realize that something has to change in its relationship with China. There's, a, a, there's one thing in Washington, strangely enough, uh, unifies people when it comes to uh, international affairs is China. Uh, I don't think that uh, we can get into it. But, and then thirdly, uh, leadership. Uh, we, ha we don't have a leader yet uh, who would be uh, showing the type of Churchillian leadership or like Ronald Reagan to say this is not good. This is not the type of relationship. Well, good for us, good for your people, good for the world. So thank God that we're seeing some uh, leaders in the Washington. Uh, Mike Pence, uh, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, Senator Rubio, Christopher Smith, has been so public uh, recognizing the real danger facing the Uyghur people as an example of the people in China facing. So um, recognition, public education, and leadership, I think, what we need right now. Just one, because I, want, I didn't want to leave your question unanswered about the dialogue. There is one example um, that when the international community, you know, was, the bad movement was, you know, up and running, uh, you know, publicly uh, in the late 90s, in 2000, the U.S. Congress passed legislation, the Tibetan Policy Act in 2002, 
actually at that point the Chinese uh, agreed to start some official dialogue with the representative of the Dalai Lama. I mean, probably was their own tactics, but what I'm trying to say that if you create enough political support at the multilateral level, even the Chinese government, they, they need to play by you know the rules and politics, and they would engage. It doesn't mean maybe you have what we want to achieve, but uh, I think that's always, we have to keep it in mind, that they, they also adjust to the reality. So you're not dealing with a monolith that is not influenced by external events. So political pressure can work also to bring them to the table and talk more constructively. That's a really good point about the um, 2002 Tibet Policy Act. It did encourage uh, dialogue. Um, I I hadn't thought about that. Uh, My one concern is that uh, the context has changed so much that now you have most policymakers sort of coalescing around the model that the U.S. and China are irreconcilable, that we have differences across the map, and that we're engaged in great power struggle. It's very different than 2002. And so from the Beijing side, you know, I think there's less incentive to to engage or to have dialogue because if it's not this problem, it's another problem. It's, a, it's the whole of society conflict in some people's minds. So it seems it might be m- more difficult to move forward with some constructive approach. And it may be that that we're out of constructive approaches, you know, and I'm open to that possibility. I only have put it on the table a couple of times because I kind of want to check that proposition and see that we are out. Um, but at any rate, I, you know, I, I really wish we could have taken more questions, but the couple we did get were provocative enough that they provoked a good half hour of discussion, I think. So uh, so uh, thank you very much for coming out today. Let, let me just mention one uh, one sort of administrative thing. If you are not on our email list um, and you've sort of known this um, event from some other uh, venue, please sign up. There's a there's a list outside that you can sign to make sure um, make sure you get on that list for future programs. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to tweet for today's event, right? Tweet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's another way to help.